This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan. And with me in the room next door is my co-host, Peter Gowers. I'm no longer in a secret location. No, you're not, mate. Um, How how, how have you found the accommodation? (laughs) The accommodation's been fantastic, and the hospitality's been even better. Oh, that's good to hear. That's uh, very nice, mate. Uh, So we are recording this podcast um, at an unusual time. We generally record around 8 o'clock at night uh, on weekdays. But uh, because of the time difference and because of our desire to head over to the US and get a bit of a on-the-ground sort of feel for what's happening with the election, over there that uh, doesn't uh, unfortunately doesn't just affect the u.s it seems mm. to affect every 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 part of the planet actually um we thought it would be good to uh, speak with some of our friends over there and so um it gives me very great pleasure to introduce someone who i've known for a few years now uh who is also a lawyer also a member of lawyers associated worldwide uh Kelly Noonan from Stokes Lawrence in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Hey, Leon. Hi, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. So, Kelly, uh, what time is it over there? It's it's Saturday morning here at nearly 9 o'clock. I know. I feel like I should ask you, so what happened on Friday night? It's uh, (laughs) it's, uh, 4.30 on Friday afternoon. Right. So the end of a long week, and it's really nice to end it uh, talking with you guys. Fantastic, fantastic. So now uh, this podcast is called Territory Story, and in our description of the podcast, we say it's all about uh, territorians and people that have a connection with the territory. Now, your connection to, to the territory is, is through our relationship, um, but you've also had the, um, well, the experience of being here in Darwin almost a year ago. Is that right? Yes, um, I had actually the real pleasure of being in Darwin about a year ago. And was that your first trip to Australia? It was my first trip to Australia, um, and Australia is a really long ways away from Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was really, uh, it was well worth it, and um, I didn't really quite know what to expect. Um, And Darwin is actually about the size of the town that I grew up in. And so I was, I suppose, expecting something a little bit like that. Um, but um, it was it was really wonderful. I mean, I was only there for a weekend, right? And we had meetings all day uh, <laughs> for two days. But, um, but I got a chance to wander around. I bought a beautiful piece of Aboriginal art at the, um, the gallery on your uh, pedestrian mall area. And uh, I had a hard time picking something, but I have a beautiful uh, piece of art that's hanging upstairs in my den, and I get mm. compliments on it all the time, and it just uh, reminds me of my time in Darwin every time I look at it. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. Now, you, you come from, a, you know, Seattle is fairly cold compared to Darwin, uh, and <laughs> rainy from what we understand. How, how did you find the weather here? Because you came what, in November. Uh, well, it was early December, actually. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, wasn't it? Uh, maybe it was late November. In any event, it was really hot and really humid, 
And um, I went for a walk every morning and, um, you know, I was dripping in sweat by the time I got back to the <laughs> But um, I've been in other hot and humid places um, and uh, it was beautiful. Um, you know, you had that big um, lighting, the light sculpture oh, yes. oh, yeah, yeah. going on at that time. It was really uh, quite beautiful. So many different public areas. I remember the one that was uh, like a, uh, a globe in one of your parks and every so often uh, it would have the green flash, you know, sort of like the uh, sunset. And, wow. uh, and then there were the box, uh, the box jellyfish uh, right, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. on that little walkway heading down to the, the waterfront wow. area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and uh, what about the food? What did you do you remember anything about the food you had here? <laughs> yeah, we well, there were actually all of our meals were um I, I looked them up today because I wanted to remember the names of the restaurants where we went to. We did the Magic Walk, which was awesome. Oh, yeah. and there was um, you know, you guys have been there. So you pick your meats and your vegetables. Mm. And I took a picture because on one little bin there was a kangaroo meat and crocodile meat and uh, probably something else that was extremely exotic. Yeah. Buffalo, maybe. Yeah, maybe buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was interesting. And then we ate at that wonderful. Uh, I probably will butcher the name, but um, Hanuman. Or That's right. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. That was great. And then you convinced the owner of uh, a gin bar uh, <laughs> for a special dinner for us so um the food was great and that actually that uh little uh that restaurant was in that area with all the um street art with all the yes. yes 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 which i thought i mean it really it's a very lively and um artistic and interesting place so i would return mm-hmm. so t- uh, tell Great. Well, t- tell us uh, the one thing that you didn't mention, which uh, Pete and I have been talking about a lot of podcasts lately. <laughs> I knew this uh, was coming. <laughs> um, uh, were the mangoes? Oh my gosh! Yes, you served us mango at your law firm. Yes. Mm. And oh, they were. I mean, I couldn't get enough of them. I think we had yeah. mango every day, and I just like I had to stop eating because I thought, well, I don't know what happens if you overdose on mango. But oh yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's mango season again, uh, mm. and in fact, Laurie's been uh, been uh, asking me to save <laughs> some mangoes. <laughs> she misses them just as much. Uh, but yeah, look, it's 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 the one time of the year that we really look forward to. It's it's the warmest time of the year because mm. it's build up to the wet season. But the thing that takes the edge off is uh, are, are the mangoes, and we're learning uh, too that there are different varieties and. So unfortunately, I didn't actually introduce you to a variety that I've uh, that I've um, I, I knew existed, but I just didn't really try them before. But they're even better than the ones that that you had, if you can imagine, Kelly. Well, there's a reason to return them, right? <laughs> That's exactly right, <laughs> Kelly. There is, um, there is. Just just on that, because I'm interested to know you you'd never been to Australia before. You came for that meeting in Darwin. Now, presumably, uh, to get to Australia, it was a bit of a winding track. Where did you land in Australia for the first time? In Darwin. Wow. So, so you... I flew from, uh, yeah, I, I can't remember now the whole route. I, I think I went Tokyo, Singapore, Darwin. 
So you've been to Australia and you've only been to Darwin. Yeah. On the way wow. home, uh, I flew through uh, Brisbane. Okay. But I was just in the airport. At the airport, yeah, okay. So you've seen another city, but, I mean, that, that would be, I would say, there'd be very few people that would fit into that category. So that's... I, I, I could tell you one other person that has. Yeah. Bill, Bill Favorino. Um, been anywhere else? Well, no, no, no. He, he, well, he has now, but uh, his, his first trip to Darwin was, wow. sorry, first trip to Australia was Darwin uh, yeah. for the regional meeting. Because Darwin is so different to the other capital cities. So that's, um, I mean, that, that's a wonderful A that you can still do it because so often we hear of people coming in via Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and Perth, etc. But um, such a unique perspective of the country having only seen Darwin. That's brilliant. Yeah, well, I, you know, it was only for a few days. And actually, I think Darwin is the size. Had I had a couple more days, it would have been really nice to have visited some of your beautiful national parks mm. and things like that. And so there's a reason to return. And I, I, I also really liked the, um, I really liked the, the kind of Aboriginal influence yeah. and also the very strong influence of um, Southeast Asia. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I grew up in a place that has very strong Native American influence. So there was a, you know, I don't know, it's interesting when you travel to see the connections between one place and another, and it just re yes. reminds you that the world isn't really as large as mm. we think it is, you know, mm. when you can draw those, um, connect the dots mm. between um, different places and different people. and mm. so. So tell us, um, where, where were you originally born and, and how did you end up in Seattle? Uh, well, I was born in France. Um, my, my, dad, <laughs> my, my dad was in the Air Force and my parents were stationed there for a couple of years, but I was an infant when they moved back to the, to the States. And uh, my, um, my dad uh, was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. That's how they had met in Los Angeles. Uh, my mother grew up in Michigan. My dad grew up in the state of Oregon, but they both uh, were in Los Angeles, which is where they met. And my dad still had some training to do when they returned from the service when I was a baby. And uh, so through a roundabout um, way, my family ended up in central Washington in a town called Yakima, which is, as I said, about the same size as Darwin. Um, it's a big agricultural area. Um, uh, a very large percentage of all the hops that are grown in the world are grown in Yakima. Uh, Yakima is very known for apples and uh, grapes. There's a very, very um, uh, big kind of uh, wine industry and pretty much anything that can grow in, uh, in, in this part of the world grows in, uh, in Yakima. And uh, my family had nothing to do with agriculture, but that's, uh, that's where I grew up. And uh, I lived there until I went to college in the Midwest. And uh, after college, returned to Seattle. Uh, I worked for a year. I always knew I wanted to return to the Northwest. Um, and uh, wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do, but I was pretty sure I was going to be going to graduate school of one sort or another. And uh, I ended up going to law school 
and uh, I went to the University of Washington, which is the large public university here in Seattle. And uh, I clerked for my current law firm as a law student and went to work for the firm right after uh, graduation. And I've been there ever since for 31 years now. <laughs> and uh, so it's not that, I mean, the story's not really that, uh, there aren't very many chapters to the story, I suppose, in some sense, but uh, I was a litigator and, uh, you know, tried commercial cases. I ended up doing a lot of work uh, for wireless carriers and, um, uh, Seattle was uh, kind of one of the one of the birthplaces of the of the wireless industry in the United States, and uh, so my firm sort of grew up with the wireless industry, and I did a lot of work uh, defending them, representing them in um, class action lawsuits, and also advising on consumer matters and advertising law and that sort of a thing. Um, pretty early on. Um, after I became an owner of the firm, uh, I got involved in firm management. And um, almost 20 years ago, I, uh, I became the firm's managing partner. And uh, after a few years, it became pretty clear to me that I, I couldn't maintain, I couldn't keep all the balls in the air that I had in the air. Um, mm. You know, I had this really active uh, law practice that involved a tremendous amount of travel. And uh, I was working with these huge teams and uh, it was uh, very consuming. And then I was also trying to manage the business. And um, after uh, exploring some different options, I, uh, I made a proposal to my firm that I take over both sort of the COO role within the firm and also the managing partner or kind of CEO role. Uh, at that time, we were going to be making a transition in our uh, COO, our executive director. And uh, so my partner said, well, let's try it out. And I began to phase out of my active law practice. And it took several years to do that. But, um, but for now, the last 13 years or so, 12 or 13 years, my focus has really been on running the business. And I'm still a practicing lawyer. I still get involved sometimes in, uh, in legal matters. Honestly, at this point, mostly in pro bono matters. Um, but my focus is really on, uh, on running the business. And that's been a great, um, it's, been a, it's been great for me. I enjoy it. Um, and I think it's been actually really good for the firm. And it's a fairly unusual structure for a firm of our size, we have about 54 lawyers, about 110 total employees to have a managing partner who uh, really devotes their time to running the business. It is, it is unusual, but um, it, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's worked well for us. So um, I'm married. I have, I've been married for how long? Uh, 30 years. We just had our 30th anniversary this summer. Um, and I have a son uh, who's 23 years old. Uh, he just graduated from the University of Washington and uh, is working at a, he's gainfully employed, which of course, as his mother makes me very happy. <laughs> um, and about 12 years ago, we opened up, 13 years ago, I guess, we opened up an office 
in my hometown in Yakima, which is, uh, uh, that's also kind of an interesting story, but I, um, I, certainly the fact that I grew up there and I had connections in Yakima uh, was, uh, was helpful in, in, in making that, um, in, ha in having that happen. But it really, um, it was somewhat of, of uh, simply an opportunity that presented itself. The nice thing for me is that my, my parents um, are healthy and um, doing great in their mid-80s and they live in Yakima. So um, mm -hmm. it's been very nice for me to have an opportunity to, um, to spend a fair amount of time, well, until now, right, until the <laughs> COVID, mm -hmm. but to spend uh, a fair amount of time uh, in Yakima, um, seeing my folks and just, uh, you know, really getting involved once again in, uh, in my hometown. How many, um, so how far is Yakima from Seattle? Uh, two and a half hours max. Okay, so it's not too bad. No, it's actually an easy, there and back um yeah. it is you do cross the mountain range so sometimes in the winter the roads can be a little bit uh uh hairy but uh, but but typically um it's I, I like to spend the night when i go but you can yeah. do it there and back in one day and you're uh you're, do you have any uh siblings i do i have yeah. uh there are four of us i have an older brother and two younger sisters uh we're pretty close in age uh, one of my sisters lives in Minneapolis, and uh, but my brother and my youngest sister live in this in the greater uh, Seattle metropolitan area, and we all have kids who are sort of in the same. Um, you know, they're they're in similar age, uh, so it's really fun for the cousins to get together and the families. So um, yeah, I'm lucky. Oh, it sounds very, uh, very homely, Kelly. <laughs> very typically American. I suppose, yeah, yeah, I, I guess it is. Uh, so in terms of your education, one of the things that really fascinates um, me about uh, US education, particularly when it comes to lawyers and doctors and, and other professionals, is that you, you have to do um, a, a, a sort of a general arts degree first, before you can actually do a law degree, right? Is that, is that, yes. And that's normal? Yes. So you can end up spending, what, what, eight years at university before you actually become a lawyer? Seven. Seven years. Yeah, law, law school is typically three years. And uh, so I received my undergraduate degree uh, in, I was an English major, uh, but I, I could have been a chemistry major, right? Right. Wouldn't wouldn't matter. Um, and then to go to law school, you take an entrance exam. Uh, that's a, a, a universal exam. And, uh, and then you apply to, to, you know, one of, there are many law schools, but you know, you apply and then you go for another three years. And, uh, and then after that, you have to take an exam uh, for the state where you wish to practice, you have to pass the bar exam. Um, there is reciprocity between certain states, and uh, so, but it's a, it's a very it's a it's a license that is granted by a particular state. Mm -hmm. mm. Just like so, one, if you're if you're a lawyer in the United States, I mean, there are all kinds mm. of exceptions. If I have a lawsuit in another state, I can get admitted for the purposes of that lawsuit. Um, I might have to have a local lawyer 
who uh, sits beside me, you know, in, in that case. So the rules are somewhat variable, but yeah, seven, seven years of education. Um, and that's true. Because, yes. because I think in Canada, they followed a similar sort of path, right? Um, which is why we, uh, I have learnt over the last little while that there are some Canadians that have actually come to Australia to do law because Canada and Australia, as you know, are both Commonwealth countries. So there's, um, there's a degree of, of recognition of that. <laughs> um, and they do their law degrees here because even though they have to pay to, to, to do them, um, it's cheaper and faster. Uh, you can finish high school here, go to Bond University uh, in, uh, on the Gold Coast, which is just south of uh, Brisbane, and get a law degree if you do your summer semesters in two and a half years. <laughs> so wow. you can actually literally be practicing lawyer be, be a practicing lawyer before you're 20 <laughs> if you play your cards right. Wow. Well, see, I don't know. I mean, I... Did you know what you wanted to do at that age? I didn't. I had no, no idea. I, I had a very circuitous path to law and probably similar to, to what you did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but it, it wasn't by design. But had I, want, had I known what I wanted to be, it could have happened a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, um, but uh, I'm interested uh, in your undergraduate degree because you did that at, uh, we, we pronounce it slightly different here, differently here in Australia. We call it Notre Dame, you call it Notre Dame. Um, you, you studied <laughs> in Notre Dame, right? I did. I did, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is in uh, South Bend, Illinois. Uh, sorry. South um, Bend, no, in Indiana. Indiana. Indiana, sorry. Yes, yes. I know that because my cousin actually studied there. Um, now, what uh, is interesting about that little fact is that uh, the current judge uh, who is being, uh, or by the time this podcast comes out, she'd probably be a Supreme Court justice, <laughs> uh, Amy, uh, uh, what's her name again? Amy Coney Barrett. Amy Coney Barrett. What's with the middle name? Is that because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? <laughs> no, it's probably her, um, it's probably her family name. So she probably took her husband's name, Barrett. Oh, I, see. I, I actually, uh, I mean, my my professional name is Kelly Twist Noonan for the same reasons. It's kind of a mouthful, right? Right, so. right. Because I thought, because when we Googled you, an actress came up, Kelly Noonan. <laughs> Did you know that? Well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> you were very so, so that must be the reason why you put the twist in there so that yeah. you, know, you can be differentiated. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine anyone would confuse me with the actress, but uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you both went to the same university. Um, what can you, what insights can you give us about um, Amy Comey Barrett on, on that basis? Um, well, she, so she went to law school at Notre Dame and I went to undergraduate at oh, Notre Dame. So again, mm -hmm. sort of making that distinction. Um, uh, the, the one thing I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about with her nomination is I think it's, uh, she, she will be the, the first, um, justice of the Supreme Court who did not attend an Ivy League school mm, right. so you know that I, I mean notre dame's not a um you know it's a competitive law school so it it's not as though um you, you know it, it didn't take a, a, a fair amount of 
effort and smarts and everything else to to uh, to be accepted. But um, but it's not an Ivy League school, and so I I, I think that's uh, that's nice. I mean, it happens to it just so happens that it's the same school I went to, which is kind of nice. But um, but uh, but regardless, I I think that's a uh, I hope that she's not the last. Um, I uh, I don't know her. Um, I I know people who do know her and have met her. And um, from everything that I have heard, um, what we see, what we've heard in the media is is true. That she's a very, um, a very thoughtful, very, uh, very, uh, you know, from what you can tell, you know, a very nice person, a very kind uh, person. Her students loved her. She was regularly, um, uh, you know, receiving, um, uh, you know, recognition by students at the law school. For being a really uh, uh, very popular and very appreciated uh, professor, and um, uh, I, if I were the president, <laughs> she's not the person that I would nominate for the Supreme Court. Um, she is; she will be among the most uh, uh, conservative and really sort of right wing of uh, of all of the justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think it would be difficult to argue that she is not qualified. Um, so one can disagree with her uh, with her perspective, um, although she did a very good job this week of making her perspective um, uh, unknown. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Supreme Court uh, these hearings have become almost ridiculous because the nominees are very, very adept at saying nothing. Um, mm. So, you know, um, but, but nonetheless, I think it seems quite clear that, uh, that she uh, meets the, whatever the qualifications are for being on the Supreme Court, she, she meets those. Um, the issue with her, uh, with her nomination is the, uh, the, the timing of it, the rank hypocrisy from my perspective, of the uh, of the Senate, um, that you know, it was just four years ago that many of the same senators refused to consider a nominee nine months before the 2016 election because we were in an election year, mm. and um, some of those, like Lindsey Graham. Uh, you know, gave impassioned speeches and, you know, you can hold me to this if this ever happens again, you know, and if the tables were turned, I promise you, I would do the same thing. Well, (laughs) that went out the window. Mm. Um, So there's nothing unconstitutional about what the Senate is doing, but it is, um, it is frankly, um, choose your adjective. It's, Mm. it's hypocritical. And, uh, and I, I worry about the um, the sort of nuclear arms race that we are, are probably going to see. I don't think it's healthy for our democracy. I think that politicizing our um, the judicial branch is uh, is shameful. Um, I think that uh, I mean it's uh, it is a very it is one in a series of very sad and unfortunate. Um, uh, developments 
uh, over the last, you know, pick your number of years, but certainly over the last four years that I think are causing an even greater divide in what is a divided country. <laughs> so, so um, we've been we've been following this uh, story um, with interest, and one of the things that the Republicans seem to uh, point out is that this all started back with is it Robert Bork? Bork. Yeah. So, so can you just explain to us what happened there? Honestly, I I can't give you I I. I I, I don't. I, I I don't know what it is about. I'd have to study up. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to go. I'd have to. I'd have to um, to just you know go back and read some articles, do a little research to tell you exactly what happened at the Bork hearing. Um, I'm not sure. I think that, um, uh, and so I'm kind of embarrassed that I can't tell you exactly what it is that uh, that was so unsettling about that. I think that. Uh, I, I think that the Republicans clearly felt that he was treated unfairly in yeah. as part of the uh the uh, the hearings um he certainly wasn't the first and he won't be the last um nominee who doesn't get um uh doesn't get confirmed because of something that comes up in their background um and that's my recollection that there yeah. was something that came up in their background and the Republicans felt that it was very unfair of the Democrats who had the majority at that time. And he, he yeah, he withdrew his nomination, I think, from memory, but I, I, I could be, I could be yeah. wrong about that. No, I believe he did, but it had to do with some, you know, some intelligence that came up or some line of, of questioning that the, uh, that the, uh, the Democrat controlled um, Senate, Senate was pursuing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, you talk about an arms race. I mean, we, we here are quite puzzled. And to tell you the truth, uh, Kelly, I'm actually a little bit concerned, and this is something that I need to do some research on myself, is we, we don't have that problem here at the moment, or, or not that I know of. We, we, certainly, we actually asked the Prime Minister about this whole thing, uh, and he said, um, he said uh, that uh, we don't have a, a Senate confirmation process, which I knew. Um, it, it's just done uh, by the Prime Minister and Cabinet, I believe, which is probably even more prone to uh, mm. politicisation than, than your process. But for some reason, as you, as you point out, um, you know, there are conventions. And uh, at least for the time being, we seem to be adhering to those conventions. But it is quite alarming to see a country like the US, which has such an old democracy, you know, flouting conventions because those are the that, that's the glue that holds you know the whole thing together. <laughs> well, and you know it's it's actually compounded by the fact that um, so you probably you know you, you you guys know about our electoral college system for electing our president. Well. Um, so that you can have a situation like we've had several times recently where the person who wins the popular vote doesn't become the president because of the electoral college and um, there's a, an imbalance where certain uh, states that are not as populated have um, really more votes per capita uh, than some of the larger and more populated states. So you can end up having these very bizarre results. Well, 
there's something actually sort of similar with the Senate because every state is represented in the Senate by two senators, right? So the state of California, the state of New York, the state of Texas, the state of Florida, very big populated states have two senators. So does the state of Wyoming. Hmm. So does the state of North Dakota. And so um, it is, uh, it, it, we are at the point now where there is sort of a minority rule in the Senate as well. Now, I mean, that's the way our constitution is set up. I'm not suggesting that there's anything untoward going on. But when you have that situation and when you have it, 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 that, that, what is going on right now in the Senate with Amy Coney Barrett is compounded by the fact that this small majority of senators represent a minority mm. of Americans. And this kind of, this is, this is my greater fear, right? That, that, that you, you, you just start adding these different pieces to the puzzle or to the bucket, whatever you want to, whatever analogy you want to use. And at some point, this sort of minority rule that's permitted under the Constitution becomes untenable to the majority of the population because we get to a situation where the tipping point is reached and it is simply anti-democratic. So what do we do about that? I don't have an answer, but it's a serious concern. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting. And Pete's got a question for you, so I'll I'll ask Pete to go there in a minute. But um, it's very interesting what you say because Australia was set up uh, under a very similar system um, and the reason for these fixed number of senators, which we also have, mind you, we have a lot more than two, uh, but we have a lot less states, is to ensure that the states retained a, a say in what happened at the federal level. Um, now, <laughs> one of our most famous politicians or prime ministers, Paul Keating, and Peter will remember this, uh, <laughs> is famously came out at one point in time and called the Senate unrepresented swill (laughs) (laughs) or unrepresentative swill. So, um, yeah, we we, we have the same situation here. But, Pete, you have a question for Kelly. Yeah, I'm just – I've always been intrigued by um, these judicial appointments and and how the system works there. And I guess maybe this is showing some some ignorance within the question, but I've always been sort of intrigued by the fact that when, when we have these situations which seem to be becoming more and more high profile and as you, know, as, as you pointed out in this case, because we sit on the eve of an election. But I've always been intrigued by the fact that the, the, I guess the personality traits of the potential judge get called into question because isn't the law the law? So what sort of cases are these guys presiding over where their personality or their personal opinions or their slant could end up determining the outcome of a decision? That's a, that's a, a, a great question. And um, it, uh, it becomes the, sort of the further you get up the food chain in the judicial system, the more that it matters. And the reason for that is that the only cases that get decided by the U.S. Supreme Court 
are ones that honestly could go either way, right? These are, these are cases that are hard cases. They're, they're ones where there's a really good argument on both sides, in theory, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's that aren't. But so this is where your philosophy about uh, judicial, um, what the job of the judge is, or how one should approach interpretation of the Constitution makes a really big difference, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if you are someone who, uh, who feels strongly that the Constitution needs to be read as it was originally intended in 1787 in the way that people would have thought in 1787. Mm. And, you know, you have to, you have to really be grounded by that. Um, then, uh, then you're going to reach potentially a different outcome than if you are someone who believes that the constitution is meant to be interpreted, um, through a, a more, um, evolving lens, you know, yeah. There's nobody who says that you don't um, you don't need to, to 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 interpret the language of the Constitution, but it, but how you interpret that, and the and the, the the perspective that you bring to what that means uh, is going to determine how you might fall on either either side of some really socially critical issues like abortion, like mm-hmm. gun rights, right. Mm. So, um, like gay marriage, um, LGBTQ rights, um, uh, I mean, things that just matter to our day-to-day life. Um, and so that's where the philosophy matters. I mean, if you are a trial court judge, in theory, Judge A or Judge B, regardless of sort of their political perspective and that sort of thing, are, 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 are likely to 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 reach more similar outcomes mm. I, I mean i'm overly simplifying because as leon knows you know the law easy stuff doesn't get decided by judges easy stuff mm. gets gets resolved um uh, more easily mm. you know where the law is really clear-cut but the law isn't always clear-cut mm. i don't know if that answered your question yeah no you have so that's what is that what you call the difference between uh, originalism and con- contextualism? Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. It just uh, originalism just doesn't seem to sit. It just doesn't sound like common sense to me. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too simplistic. You know. Well, I'll tell you a part of originalism that I find um, ironic is that the um, one of the most hotly contested. Um, issues is gun control, right? Yes. In the United mm. States. Which, yes. um, so uh, the Second Amendment has this language about, you know, uh, the right to bear arms. And um, from where I sit, if you are an originalist, then you say, okay, so, you know, because there was this interest in potentially, you know, allowing the people to form militias so that the government couldn't, you know, be oppressive and all this. Um, the people needed to have the ability to, to bear arms. Well, what kind of arms were people bearing in 1787? <laughs> right, single shot yeah. muskets. Yeah, people didn't have automatic weapons. So there's a there's a willingness to look outside the the you know sort of the original time and what was you know uh, could could have 
you know, could only have been on the minds of the drafters of the Constitution in mm-hmm. some areas. So again, I, I think there's a certain um, willingness to be flexible, shall we say, in mm-hmm. one's interpretation. Um, I'm thinking there must be a, a lack of Amish judges uh, at the moment. If you... <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, even look, just just reading that the words just make you know, to, to someone outside the U.S. a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I mean it. From an, I mean, you're an English major. That sentence doesn't even make sense. <laughs> well, <laughs> grammatically. But, no, but I mean, if it makes sense, from, from my perspective, if that makes sense, it's in order to have a rel- well-regulated militia. I mean, what was going on at the time? Mm-hmm. This, this, this baby country was coming out from under the thumb of England. Oppressors, mm. right? Yeah. We had just found our freedom. So, you know, uh, we didn't have a, 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 a well-developed uh, military. That didn't exist at that mm. time. So um, actually, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's beyond the scope probably of today, but it's kind of interesting to, 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 uh, to listen to a podcast or do a little research about, about the current debate over the meaning of that uh, of the Second Amendment, because yeah. it really wasn't until the, I think like the 1970s, that really the NRA, the National Rifle Association, began promoting this interpretation of the Second Amendment oh, and right. sort of suggesting and really uh, lobbying uh, and putting boatloads of money in the pockets of so many lawmakers. Um, mm. To, to promote this agenda that the Second Amendment meant that there really could be very, very few, if any, limits on, um, on gun ownership uh, or uh, regulation of, uh, of, of guns. So that's a, you know, from a historical perspective, it's actually a fairly new, um, a new approach, mm-hmm. a, a new interpretation. Do you know what Amy Comey Barrett's um, view is on gun control? Uh, you know, I, I, I believe, of course, she was only a judge for a really short time. But my recollection is um, that she had at least one case that came before her panel in the Seventh Circuit that had to do with um, with gun control. I mean, I think the expectation is that she's going to hew the very conservative line, that she's someone who um, conservative lawmakers and the NRA will be very happy with as a justice. Mm. That's, mm. The, that's the expectation. It just, I mean, and I know, Kelly, you'd know this, you know, as well as anyone who's travelled, people outside the US just do not understand this whole gun uh, relationship. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's it's beyond comprehension, you know. And we pay attention, and everybody uh, becomes so uh, uh, you know emotional, and we have these upheavals when we have these mass shootings, mm-hmm. which is normal. But you know, the the percentage of people who die every day 
from self-inflicted gun wounds. And what you, what you learn, what you know, if you, if you do any research into this, is that most people who attempt to, um, to take their own lives, if they don't succeed, live long and happy lives, right? Mm. They don't actually mm. die by suicide. I mean, some do, but the, but the majority don't. But when you have a gun in your hand, it's, the chances of you succeeding at taking your own life are yeah. going to be very, very high. Yeah. And then the accidental shootings um, and, uh, and just the, the, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragedy that is so unnecessary. Mm. And um, it's, it's one of the many things at this point that is very, it's very difficult to see what the path out of this is. Mm. And are you concerned now, uh, now, assuming that this confirmation goes through, um, that uh, the decision in Roe v. Wade is um, going to be overturned at some point? Um, well, there are so many different things that could happen, right? So if Biden wins and if the Senate, uh, uh, if, if the Democrats uh, have a majority in the Senate, which could happen. I mean, of course, none of us know what's going to happen, but in a month, well, it won't be till January, but we could have a very different makeup. And I don't know what will happen. There may be some, um, frankly, some retaliation or some norm busting <laughs> that the Democrats engage in as well. Um, so, so who knows, but let's just say that this, that Barrett is confirmed, which I think she probably will be, and that the makeup of the court is sort of this six to three majority. Not that everybody always falls in line, right? There are swing people even now. Um, I don't think that it'll be overturned in one fell swoop. I think it's more likely that there will just be a continued whittling away. Mm. I, 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 that, that would be my guess. That, that, that in certain states... Uh, uh, lawmakers will be more emboldened to pass more restrictive laws that will get um, uh, uh, appealed up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be more likely to allow them to stand or to allow more aspects of them to stand than what might otherwise have happened. So I think there will be an emboldening process, and it will become very, very... Um, uh, 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 there'll be a patchwork across the United States mm. of, um, you know, what states have really uh, very heavy restrictions, which ones don't. And so there'll be this very, um, people with money will always be able to, hmm. you know, have choice, yeah. but poor people won't. And, and this is a thing that, you know, I, I've been gaming out in my own head, right? And it just doesn't make sense. There's a few aspects of Roe v. Way that don't make sense to me, or the, the, the whittling away as such. The, the party that is uh, promoting pro-life is obviously the Republican Party. But the people that it is going to affect the most are more than likely to be people that don't vote for them anyway. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, if, if, if you, you know, the, the lower socioeconomic um, areas of the U.S., 
are, are the ones, as you just said, you know, that are not going to be able to afford an abortion or, or be able to go to a state where you can. Um, they're the ones that are going to end up having uh, uh, children uh, in, in this way. And the, those, and this may be controversial, I'm not, I don't mean it to be, though, uh, I'm just looking at it from a factual perspective. Uh, th- those children are, are going to grow up not really being, you know, uh, people that you'd regard as being the Republican base. So I, I, don't, I don't, what's the long game here? I don't get it, you know? Well, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, um, I want to, I, I, I think it's, there are people who have very, very deeply held um, religious and moral beliefs about when life begins and i don't um i don't it's not my place to 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 um to judge that right um where i thought you were going with your with your question was if if life matters which of course it does and you believe that every life has value, including the life of an unborn child, then don't the lives of people, of children who are born, who are in the world also matter? Mm-hmm. Doesn't education matter? Doesn't healthcare matter? Doesn't um, having access to, to, to reasonably healthy and supportive child care matter. Um, that's the part that to me is very difficult to, to reconcile. Um, so I also think that there are caricatures that people create about who are the people seeking an abortion, right? Mm. Mm. It's bad people. It's people who, who just couldn't be bothered to use birth control or who, um, you know, who are, uh, you know, we can all come up with, Mm. you know, stories. Um, And uh, I I don't know that those are borne out in reality. Mm. The other thing that's interesting, and I I saw a statistic very recently that I had never seen before that I found fascinating, and that was that it was a chart that showed um, the... Uh, the rate of abortion per capita going back to the very um, the early 70s when Roe versus Wade was decided up until a couple of years ago. And it showed under each presidential administration whether the rate of abortion went up or went down. Well, what's fascinating about that is that the rate of abortion has gone down at a faster rate under all the democratic uh, presidential administrations. And it's gone down, it's actually gone down, I think, almost always. It's been a downward trend almost since the early 70s. But it's been very stable or gone down only a very tiny amount under Republican administrations. Now, I don't know why. I mean, we could all speculate about why. But it's, it was fascinating. And I thought, well, gosh, if, you, if that's what you want, is to have fewer abortions, then maybe you should be voting for the the Democrat who's running, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, so so anyway. Kelly, why is it that 
whenever we talk about these Supreme Court justices, why is there constantly this debate around the fact that, well, if so-and-so is the judge who's approved, then all of a sudden these three or four previous judgments are now going to be called into question and be overturned. I, I, I've always found it interesting that there's this, uh, I suppose, instant attention turning to the fact that, oh, well, if this judge gets confirmed, then they're going to overturn this previous decision. Why does that come into question all the time? Well, I think it. Um, I, I think that the genesis of that is that there are these very hotly debated issues, right, yeah. where Americans don't agree mm. and where justices don't agree and where depending on, you know, the way you approach the issue, you're going to come out in a different way. And these all tend to be issues where there have been recent decisions that have been split, you know, where it's a 5-4 decision. Right. And so, for example, the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, which uh, is on the Supreme Court's docket for, I believe, the week after the election. Um, so Amy Coney Barrett could be sitting on the bench and hearing that, hearing that case. Um, the, uh, the Affordable Care Act has been challenged on a variety of grounds. Um, and the last time it was up at the Supreme Court, it was upheld on the narrowest of margins. And actually John Roberts um, uh, voted with the um, kind of the more left-leaning mm. uh, members of the, of the court to uphold it. And now with, uh, a, a, it, it, with a different makeup on the court, there's great concern over, um, over the law being uh, overturned, the mm. challenge being successful. Right. No, nobody knows if that will happen, right? Uh, and, and judges can sometimes surprise you. Yeah. Uh, so, but, th but that's the reason, is that, is that when these decisions have historically been 5-4, and now the balance has changed, yeah. and it's 6-3, in order to, well, you, you get the idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Leon, that's different to our system, right? Because... Once the High Court makes a decision on something, the decision's made. There's no, there's no future, you know, reopening of that decision. Oh, no, they can. They can do that. Uh, but generally it's called stare decisis, which is let the decision stand, right. which means that uh, a High Court is not going to go back and revisit, revisit one of its own decisions unless there are really compelling reasons for it to right. do so. Okay. Well, and that's, that's true in the United States as well, but um, cases rarely present in exactly the same way. Yeah. There's almost always the ability, I mean, Leon does this as a lawyer, you know, this is what lawyers do, right? You can, well, this case is a little different than the last one because of this, or, yeah. the, you know, the facts are slightly different, or the underlying law that's being challenged is, there's a slightly different aspect of that that's being looked at. So, mm. um, so there's typically a way to distinguish. Okay. Right. Let's, uh, let, let's flip back to uh, Washington State now. Washington State is above uh, 
Is it, is it above Oregon? Yeah, I think it, it is. is. Yeah, yeah above California, Oregon, 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 Washington. Right. So you're just on the book. How far is it to Seattle to Vancouver? Is it a short little drive uh, there? Depends on how long the line is at the border. <laughs> <laughs> Going out or coming in? <laughs> either way, either way. But if it's not on a Friday night or a Saturday, Sunday afternoon, uh, if you didn't have to wait at the border, it's about two and a half hours. So quite close. So same, same distance to Yakima or same, same yeah. driving time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what, uh, what we'd like to know as far as the impending election is concerned, Washington state, does that have a Democratic or Republican governor? What does the state legislature look like? Uh, we are um, uh, a, a pretty solidly blue state. And in right. the United States, what that means is that we tend to be very Democratic-leaning. Um, but what's interesting is, like most states that are um, uh, blue, uh, it's the big metropolitan areas that are blue. So in, in pretty much most of the United States, the, the bigger, the urban areas tend to be, I, I mean, it's a generalization, but the urban areas tend to be blue and the more rural areas tend to be red. So even in very red states, when you look at the, um, the, the, the biggest cities uh, or the major metropolitan areas, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be blue. So that's true in Washington state as well. So um, when you get uh, kind of to the east side of the mountains that divide our state, north to south, um, you're in much more red territory. Uh, but because most of our population is centered in um, the greater Seattle metropolitan area, the Puget Sound area, uh, you know, we, we have a, a Democrat for governor, um, our a state legislature tends to be a little bit more closely divided, but, but usually swings um, the Democrat. But okay. with a fair amount of centrists as well. Yeah, um, right. And, and, what and my, about... our city, our city is, is, it's just shades of blue. I mean, it's, you know, our, our city, you know, people who are pretty like moderate Democrats are seen as super right wing in right. Seattle, right. Which, which is not the best way of governing. The, yeah right and so what about uh, at the federal level your two senators are they democrats democrats both, both democrats. democrats right okay so you're not really going to be affecting the election too much or not certainly not in a, one of those swing states no we're, we're, we are nobody ever comes in and can't in washington <laughs> i mean we are we're not a we're not a swing state we're not a swing right. state yeah. Right. Uh, and how many uh, congressmen do you have? Oh, that's a good question. I, d I don't know exactly how many. Federal. I mean, how many? Yes, federal, in, yes. The yeah. U.S. Uh, Congress. Oh, that is, I'm embarrassed. I don't know that. We probably have, I'd say we probably have about um, 20, 15 right. or 20. Mm, yeah, okay. I, I have to look that up. Right. So, um Okay, that, that's interesting. And, and look, just in relation, in relation to your own firm, right, because, I mean, you, you talked about being shade, you know, the, the city being shades of blue and obviously very progressive. Um, your, your own firm is, uh, is quite unique, isn't it? Yeah, we are. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we, uh, as of January this, of this year, um, we became a majority women-owned law firm. 
So we have um, 25 owners, equity owners, and uh, 14 of them are women. So um, more than 50, we have about the same percentage of total female lawyers in the firm as we do uh, female uh, owners. So it's about 56, 57%. and uh, that's fairly unusual. We are the largest women-owned law firm in the state of Washington. I believe, uh, I, well, I know that we're one of the biggest women-owned business law firms in the United States. Um, those statistics are a little hard to come by. So, you know, I don't know if we are the biggest, but we're certainly among the largest um, sort of traditional business law firms that have a majority of uh, women owners. Mm. And is that an agenda that you've been driving, Kelly, or has it just happened? Not at all. No. um, You know, it's interesting. Um, I think that uh, people are often interested in in knowing the answer to that question. Mm. And uh, we are a place that certainly attracts excellent women lawyers. Uh, We we attract excellent male lawyers as well. and, uh, you know, success begets success. Um, mm. there's, there's really something to that. We don't have to work hard to attract women lawyers. It's very obvious that uh, a, a woman will be, there's, there's absolutely nothing that's going to hold a woman back at Stokes Lawrence. Nothing systemic within our firm that's going to hold anybody back from being very successful. And so that, that's attractive because I think a lot of firms um, struggle with that. Mm. They, they don't want that to be the case, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more difficult to, mm. uh, to attract and retain um, excellent women lawyers when you don't have as many examples of that. Mm. Um, our, the firm was started by men you, uh, you know, close um, to 40 years ago. Are you now backtracking uh, over some of those decisions that were made when it was uh, majority male owned? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, not not at all. In fact, you know, it's funny. We were uh, we were majority women owned in the two thousands, and um, t- to be honest with you, I actually um, there was a point at which I don't know if it's if it's when we became majority women owned. I think it may have been when. when 50, like more than 50% of our lawyers were women. I didn't even realize that that had happened. Mm-hmm. One of my partners came to me and said, hey, Kelly, did you, did you mm-hmm. appreciate that we now, more than half of our lawyers are now women? And I said, no, you've got to be kidding. And, <laughs> you know, so we added it up. So there was no, there was no agenda. Um, and uh, there's not a, I mean, you know, in a couple of mm-hmm. years, we might be majority mm-hmm. male-owned again. Uh, you know, there's, there's no... There really is no no agenda, but um, and all the things that I think make us a very attractive firm for women lawyers also make us a very attractive place for male lawyers. Mm-hmm. And, and what are the what are those things, Kelly? So, um, you know, I can tell you about policies, and uh, and those certainly matter. So we have policies like. Uh, gender-neutral uh, parental leave policies, which in much many other places in the world are commonplace, but not necessarily commonplace in the United States. So any parent um, gets 
uh, the same paid leave that every other parent gets. And we, and we insist that people take it. So um, I don't usually have to twist the arms of any of our new mothers to, to take leave, but sometimes I have to sit down and have a conversation with our uh, uh, prospective dads and let them know that the expectation is that they will take the leave and, you know, blah, blah. So, um, so we have, you know, so we have policies and that's just one example, but I actually think the bigger, um, reason why we have been so successful in attracting and retaining excellent women and men, um, is because of our culture and because of the way we approach, um, people developing their practices and sort of our, our, our collaborative and um, growth-oriented values. So, you know, it, we have expectations about excellence and, um, and uh, client service and all the good things that make someone an excellent advisor to, to their clients. Um, and allow people to build outstanding reputations. Um, but, but we want people to be doing that as, um, in a way that, that they want. So everyone has a, 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 a business plan that's really tailored to what they, where they want their practice to be going and, and how they want to develop. And, um, and we encourage people to bring their whole selves to, to work. And, uh, we, um, you know, I meet one-on-one with every single one of our lawyers. We have a whole process that we go through with our associates and with our, with our partners. Um, and our expectation is that once people have decided what they want and what they're going to do to get it, uh, that they're going to follow through on their commitments and the firm's going to do everything we can to help them achieve that. And, uh, we don't have a one size fits all. If, if, if someone um, is interested in, um, you know, focusing their energies this way and doing less of that, we can make that work usually. Um, we have the ability to allow people to work a more flexible schedule or to, to work fewer hours. Um, and that is not only for moms. You know, there are other, there are various reasons why someone might want that. Uh, a few years ago, we had a partner who um, was uh, 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 was an actor, and and he, he that mattered to him. He wanted to be able to act in community wow. theater. So he uh, he had a commitment to work fewer hours than somebody else. Um, so it isn't only a parental issue, but that is something that can be very attractive to people who are parents. Um, compensation, of course, is, is, is adjusted depending on the contributions that people make. But, uh, but, but not having a one-size-fits-all approach to people and really encouraging and allowing people to develop um, their professional life the way they want to be supported in that, um, I think plays a really, really big role in, um, in, a, in being attractive to a wide variety of people. 
Mm. Including women. It sounds like a very level-headed approach. Yeah, we think so. I mean, it's, um, you know, and it, actually it's interesting because this year we've certainly been tested. We yeah. all have, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, and I, I really, you know, there's a real strong sense of um, commitment, I think, to each other and, and to the firm. And, uh, and I've, I've just seen a remarkable amount of uh, pitching in and people doing what they can, helping each other out, mm. uh, being flexible uh, with each other, with their staff, mm. uh, picking up the slack for each other, and then returning the favor. Um, I mean, it's been, you know, I, th- I think that, that what presumably we're all doing is sort of looking for how... Uh, like what's what's happened over the last seven months that's been really great, mm. you know? And, and how do we carry that on? And let's let's like really notice it because if we really notice it and shine a spotlight on it, we can uh, we can allow that to kind of help us carry through uh, in the years to come. Mm. Not not just the specific things we've done, like working from home and figuring out that that can be productive, but kind of the way we've done it and mm-hmm. how we've done that as a team and, uh, and what we can learn from that. So I, I actually think it's kind of exciting to think about how, uh, how we can take advantage of the opportunity and the, and the crisis mm-hmm. to, to sort of uh, maybe not fully reimagine, but, but, um, but pick out the pieces that have been good. Yeah, it's something that Leon and I have talked a fair bit about. Um, you know, obviously in, in, in March this year, things changed dramatically for everybody, but it was all initially seen as doom and gloom and a total negative. But, um, you know, the, the classic example being, you know, as you've described, and I think if, if I'd said to you 12 months ago, well, look, in, in March 2020, um, it's going to be necessary for these following things to happen. Uh, just to keep your doors open or to remain in business, you would have said, oh, don't be stupid, that'll never happen. But, you know, everybody did. And I know the word pivot is used all the time and it's a buzzword all of a sudden, but, you know, businesses like yours could never have truly imagined what, what 2020 would have been like and, and how you would have had to completely change your outlook on things. Completely. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I you know, when everybody was scrambling to like, wow, how do we get people set up to work from home? And how do we make this all happen? By the way, we launched two major pieces of software on the very first day of work from home. Wow. We had to, we were ready to go. It was anyway, that's another story, but we did it successfully. Um, thanks to the amazing people who were working on that in the firm. Um, but I heard somebody say, uh, lawyers just advanced uh, five, the, their, their technology advanced five years in the space of five days. Mm. <laughs> Would not right? surprise me. Yeah. So, mm. um, yeah, people became more self-sufficient and, um, they started really learning how to use our tools. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people that are from, frankly, including me who never yeah. would have thought that people could be truly productive Yes. Working from home. I didn't think I could be productive yeah. working from home. Yeah. 
I, I heard a comedian mm-hmm. talking the other day saying that um, he, he, he went to um, – he went to see a, like a genie reading a crystal ball in 2019 and the genie said, in 2020, the majority of meetings that you have will start with this next sentence. You have to take it off mute. <laughs> um, yeah. Kelly, something I'm really interested in and I, I love the fact that, um, you know, you celebrate your majority women-owned firm and and I love the fact that obviously you're very open-minded to the fact that that wasn't an agenda it just sort of happened organically in in recent times certainly in Australia it it has felt a lot like and and as a white male in his 40s I guess you know there's there's been a a very noticeable change um in the way that businesses in general uh look to recruit personnel um, in the the way certain events uh, are now promoted on on our you know yearly schedules, I'm interested to know. I, I know that it's it's not a um, an intentional move, but do you feel any pressure towards the fact that you know women and and minorities have seemingly been uh, kept down over the years? Um, to try and further that agenda, you know, in a positive way, not obviously in a discriminatory way, but have you, have you felt that pressure at all? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a, a really, um, that's a great question. And actually it's, um, uh, so I don't know if this is exactly answering it, but we are very proud of um, of our uh, gender parity and the fact that being a, a, a woman at Stokes Lawrence is kind of a non-issue, right? It just is. You get to a certain, a, a certain level and we don't, we, 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 we literally don't have to think about, well, do we have a woman on that committee? And mm. have, right. I mean, we just, it's just very, it becomes very, very uh, natural and organic. I can't say the same about our racial diversity. Mm. And um, so one of the things that we've been really doing a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, sort of internal uh, discussions and thinking about is how do we actually start making a difference in our racial diversity? Um, and is there a way that we can use the fact that we are a progressive firm Mm-hmm. Um, that we do have this demonstrated um, diversity and inclusion and equity when it comes to gender to further um, our diversity uh, when it comes to race. Um, you know, we're not actually that much worse than any other firm out there when it comes to racial diversity, but we're not anywhere near where we want to be. So, um, so that's, uh, that's a conversation, frankly, that we've been having for a while, but that conversation has become far, far more, um, what's my word? I mean, the, the, the urgency of that has become way more pronounced mm-hmm. since the, um, the, uh, well, since George Floyd's murder in May. 
and the um, so I, I was I was listening to somebody the other day who made a very interesting comment. She said, um, "Proximity creates empathy, which leads to understanding." Proximity creates empathy, which leads to understanding. And George Floyd's murder created a proximity because of the video for anybody in the world, right? Mm. But, but certainly for, um, you know, just speaking as an American, it was, um, there was something about that and then the aftermath that was just this, this, um, just this light bulb moment, I think, for so many white Americans that, you know, it's not enough to be passively non-racist. We have to be really actively anti-racist. Mm. We need to be an ally. We need to, we need to take action. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of that internally and saying, okay, well, within our law firm, what actions can we take that can, again, you know, let's leverage what we've got. Let's leverage the mm. strength that we've got. And um, not just increase the diversity within our firm, which is definitely a goal, but what can we do to, uh, to promote social justice um, and equity in the broader community? We're lawyers, after all. Like, that's yeah. something that, that we can potentially contribute to. What can we do to contribute to the makeup of the bar? So how can we look even just beyond our four walls or for virtual walls to the um, to the broader legal community and the broader professional community to um, to to help sort of dismantle some of the systems and and prop up the systems that can increase um, uh, the pipeline of uh, of uh, diverse uh, people in um, in our profession and um, so there's. You know, there isn't an answer to that, mm. but, but it's definitely um, uh, uh, a, a very top of mind. Um, and, uh, you know, once you start talking about it, too, like I get on a podcast and I start saying this is something we're doing, um, I actually have to start doing it, don't I? <laughs> like, we, like we, you know, the, by, by talking about it and by saying it out loud, you know, including outside of our firm, we now create some degree of uh, of of, uh, of responsibility for actually taking action, mm. making mm. progress. It's very interesting, um, Kelly. Seattle. Uh, I keep coming back to Seattle because that's where you are. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, not many Australians uh, or indeed Territorians would be aware of the fact that Seattle is famous for at least three things that I can think of, three big companies, Starbucks, Microsoft, and Boeing. Uh, am I missing anything? Amazon. Amazon, oh, of course. Wow. <laughs> oh yeah. gosh. So what is it about Seattle that creates these mega uh, you know, and we're not talking about one particular industry here. We're talking about over, obviously, a long time with Boeing uh, and, and, and Amazon. What, what, what makes Seattle so special that it's able to create these sort of companies? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And then there are some other industries that are super strong, like uh, biotech and, you know, stuff like that. Um, some of it is an accident, right? So Boeing was in 
started in Seattle and the headquarters are no longer in Seattle. The headquarters for Boeing have been in Chicago for a, a while. Um, but, uh, but we were the birthplace of Boeing. Um, Bill Boeing was from Seattle, mm-hmm. right? Or was it Bill? Was he the founder? It, the, the, the Boeing who founded uh, Boeing um, was from Seattle. Uh, uh, Bill Gates grew up in Seattle as did Paul Allen. So some of that is, it's your hometown, so it's an accident, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other aspects of that. I mean, um, it's, a, it's a really nice place. So I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be flippant, but it's, a, it's beautiful. Um, we, have, uh, we have mountains, we have water. We're, we're, we're very close to, um, you know, we're, we're actually surrounded by different bodies of water. We have mm-hmm. islands. We have mountains that are on the Olympic Peninsula to our west. We have mountains that run down the middle of, of, uh, of the state of Washington and all the way into California, the Cascade Mountains to our east. I mean, it's just a really, really lovely place. Um, it does rain a lot, but um, it's also a very temperate climate. And mm-hmm. when, the, when the sky is blue, there's no more beautiful place in the world. Than, than here. So it's an attractive place. It's highly educated. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a really big research um, uh, university. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then success begets success, right? The, I, told, I mentioned the, um, the wireless industry. Well, one of the families that my firm represented, but that was a huge in the, uh, in the early days of the wireless industry, happened to live here. So when this company that they created um, grew and became one of the biggest companies in the wireless industry, that spawned all kinds of other Mm. uh, companies in the wireless industry. Microsoft was founded here. Well, there are hundreds of spinoffs from Microsoft, lots of entrepreneurial ventures that then became big. And then you have this hotbed of talent so other companies want to come here to get in on the action of the talent. Yeah. Mm. Am I right on the subject saying, of wireless, go ahead, Pete. Oh, I just wanted to say, am I right in saying, Kelly, that um, the suburb or the, if you call it suburb or region where Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos live is responsible for some ridiculous majority of the United States wealth? Yes, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because they, don't they live within literally hundreds of metres of each other? Yeah. Mm, crazy. Yeah, I mean, there are, it's, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it shifts, like who, who's number one, who's number two, who's number three. So I don't know who's number one right now. But <laughs> yeah, you've got Bill Gates, you've got Jeff Bezos, both living here. Paul Allen, who died a couple of years ago, um, yep. was... Uh, uh, also usually in like the top five or six. Yeah. So amazing. I want to, I want to, I want to leave you with this uh, one interesting fact, Kelly, and I'll, I'll be very impressed if you know it, but I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but because <laughs> you mentioned wireless, uh, you know, you've mentioned uh, the wireless industry a lot. Did you, uh, did you know who invented Wi-Fi? <laughs> no, I didn't. Is it an Australian? It is, in fact, the. Uh, I'm just. Got, I want to get the name right because it's called the CSIRO here, uh, but it stands for the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Industrial Research Organization, a body of our government. 
Oh, yep. really? Yes. Well, I'm happy to know that. Yeah, I didn't. I, I I'm going to just think of Australia every time <laughs> that my Wi-Fi works or doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, we're we're so very good at inventing it, things, but not so good at manufacturing them. It's true. It's it, you know, I listen to you, Kelly, and I just lament because you know we have so much talent here. And, you know, for reasons that I just can't quite figure out, we, we just don't seem to be able to be as entrepreneurial as Americans in, in, in converting our intellect into, you know, companies like, like you guys have got over there. So um, it's a still a work in progress, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah, I mean... Right. You, we, there are there are people who probably are a lot smarter than me who could talk about, um, you know, all, all the all the various things. I mean, I, um, of course, I, I hope that we don't, you know, you look at Detroit, right? Detroit was a powerhouse and then it kind of fizzled big time mm. um, uh, when the auto industry uh, escaped. I don't think that's going to happen to Seattle. I think we're diversified enough um, and our state economy is diversified enough that um, that we should be able to weather uh, economic storms, and we're very fortunate that way. Um, but um, you know, you can't take anything for granted. Mm. Very <laughs> true, Kelly. Um, uh, having been a DJ for the last thirty years, among other things, um, I could not let you leave this podcast knowing that you're from Seattle, Washington, without talking about the famous grunge rock scene of the '90s which, of course, you know, was the birthplace of, of wonderful bands such as Nirvana. Um, what, if any, influence does, does that have over Seattle these days? Oh, that's a, you know, that's a good question. We actually do a little work for some, um, some local musicians, which is kind of fun. Cool. Uh, I mean, I don't, but um, some, of my, some of my partners do. Mm. Um, and uh, it was... It, it was a, a, a pretty big deal, I would say, in the '90s, um, and now I think a lot of the there's a pretty active music scene here. I, I can't say that I'm someone who's super plugged into it, but um, but I think anytime you have an area where uh, you know you 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 have um, like we did in the '90s, sort of this sound that yes. became just so associated with this area that then also creates um, this sort of magnet type environment where uh, like it's a cool place to be and um, you know, uh, people want to be there and want to do, want to be experimenting. Um, and so I think that's true. I think that we still, we, I mean, there's no music scene right now. Yeah. <laughs> because at least certainly no live music. That's everywhere. Yep. Um, yeah, but um, but it's the kind of place where uh, on a sat Friday or Saturday night, if you're looking for something to do during normal times and you go to check out like what's going on, I mean, there literally are dozens and dozens and dozens of different live um, music yep. venues. So. so Pete asked a question about music. I'm going to ask a movie question. <laughs> what did, what, what, what did uh, Sleepless in Seattle do for Seattle? 
<laughs> it created some really tacky um, gifts at like our the little stores. You know the 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 night shirt that says you know sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, I mean, there are actually there are a lot of people who live on um, uh, houseboats. I mean, there are houseboat communities oh, wow. that are kind of cool. And yeah. uh, one of my, I had a partner who lived on a houseboat, not very far from where the Sleepless in Seattle houseboat was. Um, so yeah, there's a water orientation here mm. for sure. Right. Well, you have to visit. Well, we were planning to, remember, we were going to have the uh, retreat in Seattle, so we'll have to postpone that to maybe the end of next year. I don't know if you heard the latest, but uh, I, apparently our country is going to be in lockdown uh, till the end of next year. Wow. Mm. So that's what the government has indicated in its last budget, that uh, it doesn't anticipate opening up uh, international travel um, other than obviously repatriation, um, to coincide with when they expect a, a vaccine to be developed. Wow. Okay. Well, someday we'll all look back <laughs> on this and it'll be, you know, this interesting chapter in our lives. Indeed, indeed. Kelly, it's been really fun having you on the podcast. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I, I don't know whether it would have been a little bit uh, too deep, Pete, in relation to some aspects of the law, but uh, it's an unfortunate byproduct of having lawyers on a podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really a pleasure. I, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Leon. Thanks, Kelly. That was Kelly Noonan from Seattle, Washington on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.